welcome. Today, we're talking with Alec Fry, an award-winning veteran of 20 years in the IM space. Alec has worked in and around countless IM engagements in the region within enterprises, and today, we milk his big, shiny brain for all things IM. Enjoy. Alec, how does IM fit into the usual security implementations or policies for organizations or even for individuals? Looking at it from a security point of view of specifically IT or network security, identity fits really as a first entry point in amongst a policy or a set of components that you might have to try and protect your network or your data or user information, especially with privacy being such a concern at the moment. Really ensuring that you've got strong authentication and authorization in place is critical in some spaces like software development, for example, where people have tried to make the experience more user-friendly or give users lots of features. In a lot of cases, security and or identity was really retrofitted to make sure it was secure. In a lot of project development life cycles, security was near the tail end just before the project delivers code. So what some of us who've been working in identity for a long time have been trying to push, especially with a more generic security background, is that amongst a comprehensive suite of security components that include everything like firewalls, intrusion detection, antivirus, user behavior analysis, all of those things that make a full comprehensive security suite, not only is identity a critical part of that, but identity actually spans across pretty much every step of those components because with user access, and now of course is the specific privileged user access. So you've really got to have a magnifying glass almost investigating which users are accessing what, if users who are allowed access are accessing more than they should be. It's always been a leading critical part of security. And when you ask about that from an individual user point of view, the way technology's moved now, there's a lot more of identity being in the hands of end users, whether it's everything from phones, shared iPads, wearable devices. So really authentication has moved from logging onto a corporate network once you're physically in the office building to ensuring a user has access to what they should see from any point, from any device to a number of different systems that they're connecting to. So the nature of the landscape has changed a lot, but it's always been what should be the strongest primary focus to start your security policy implementation. IDAS versus on-prem. Can you walk me through the pros and the cons? Considering your lengthy experience in this one domain, I think is, is critical. So originally to access system A, you'd have a list of usernames and passwords stored in it. And then system B, you'd have a different list of usernames and passwords and then system C. And as each of those proliferated around the office, things like TACAX and RADIUS and, and other centralized authentication systems sprung up with the intention that if you're a user in a network connecting to 10 or 15 different systems, hosts, applications, you don't necessarily need to store a username and a password for every single one, but you can store that in a centralized thing like a RADIUS database that can proxy your authentication to whichever you're trying to connect to at the time. As that increased and security became more of an issue, around the mid-90s, the RSA two-factor authentication and other tokens challenge response sprung up. And the interesting thing that they provided is strong two-factor authentication, but they did it at a very specific point. For example, if you were accessing a system like a Unix host, you could say anyone who logs in or any subset of these users need to authenticate with a token. Then separately, if they go to access a certain financial application, you could protect that with an authentication point with a two factor then you could say for a transaction like transferring anything over a million dollars again it's authenticated with a token so in a long line of transactions that have a cohesive flow access the system then the application then do certain transactions you're just putting in little tiny gates at each point that you want strong authentication as that progressed what a number of people found were 
I used to love getting this question. It was very interesting. People would say, I use an RSA token to log into my corporate network. And then I also use it when I log into my bank and I have a different token. Why can't I just have one token to use in both places? One of the key reasons that that occurred, that you would have a different token for every system was whoever owned that system. So let's say the bank, they would say, okay, if I want my users to access their accounts, I'm going to allocate them a token and the details that make that token work or the software that's tied to that is in my database and that's where my user information is. Now, for you to be able to use the same token to log into your bank that you use to log into your office, those two companies would need to quite willingly share a single user record between the two of them. Effectively, then they would lose the ownership of it. So for example, if you're corporate and your bank said, yeah, you know what, here's one record for Carissa Breen. We'll have a copy in our system and you can have a copy of the same thing in your system so that she can use the one token for both our systems. Now that weakens the strength of their data security because they don't know how strong the other environment is protecting that, that data. For that reason, as things like that proliferated more, the model of IDAS came about from the point of view of saying, why not take that centralized federation a step further and have it in the cloud? And the interesting thing about that is to be honest with the history that I have with authentication, but I've also done a number of things Things, including tech support manager for a desktop management software. So at one of those periods in time when I was actually not specifically working in identity, along came, if I'm not mistaken, I think Semantic VIP was the first vendor that came along with a cloud-based two-factor authentication software version of the token. This gets back to your question about the pros and the cons. One of the interesting, and I don't know if I would call it so much as a con, as a challenge, but to trust an IDAS environment to host your authentication means you're saying, when I've got a user that wants access, I'm no longer going to store their username, password, their token details in my internal environment. I'm going to trust it to an external hosted source or hosted vendor. The trust that that requires for people to put in an external provider to store user identity, not only manage it or host it, but store it elsewhere has been addressed over the last 10 or so years because of disaster recovery, uptime guarantees, that kind of thing. So taking that factor of the trust of the reliability and the safety of it, that for me seems to be the biggest challenge rather than con. The number of pros, once you can get past that kind of trust issue, if you want to call it that, is the speed, the reliability, the scalability, the fact that you know you don't have to have your staff trained up on it. As long as you're, you're working with a vendor or integration partner who you know, you can say, hey, we've got 10 new users we want to add. Or if you've got a really well automated environment that says, as soon as we add these 10 users in, in the HR system and configure them the right way, we know that within 10 minutes, they're going to propagate into the identity system and it's all going to take care of itself without any challenges. So there's a lot of pros to IDAS from the usability, scalability, hands-off management point of view. And like I said, for me, the drawback really is just that old school thinking of my money is safer in a jar under my bed than it is in a bank. It's really that whole do I trust giving this to someone outside of my immediate control? And because we do that with so much of our data anyway, things like Salesforce with customer management data has been in the cloud for a long time. So for me personally, having worked in identity so early on, it was just like, really? People are trusting that outside of their own two hands? Because I had trouble getting over that feeling myself, but I think that's all where it's gone. And for that reason, there's not many drawbacks as long as you address it by going with a reputable vendor, et cetera. So on the back of that, what advice, so you spoke before about you had your own reservations about moving to that IDAS solution and people who potentially are still thinking in that mindset or, or are concerned about moving over to that solution, what advice would you give people to trust those solutions like you said you know good vendor analysis but is there anything else that people are perhaps missing excellent question 
identity vendors or specialty identity consultancies look at a strong view of their as-is and their to-be in terms of the systems they've got, the user access processes and tools they're using today. And in so many cases, what we find is people are already on a path moving data to the cloud as it is. And because they're already working towards moving data to the cloud and or giving their own internal staff access more remotely or more mobile from handheld devices or from home or on the road, whatever, trying to give their staff more flexibility of where they connect from. Because a lot of the times now, what they're connecting to is data systems that are actually in the cloud as it is, then for that reason, it's not such a big shift to say, if you're going to allow your critical customer information to be stored in the cloud, all we're talking about doing now is adding where you store the information of which of your staff have access to what in the cloud. And as long as you work with an integration partner who can map out the process for you and walk you through what the security is built and wrapped around that, so how they're protecting the data, what the encryption is and what the processes are and the log file reviews. Basically, it's kind of like to go on an extreme. If you're going into hospital for a surgery and a doctor really walks you through carefully what they're doing, how they're doing it, if they do it in a way that you say, you know what, what you're doing is scary, it's invasive, but because I know I need to do it and because you're walking me through so thoroughly and really presenting such a level of assuredness and safety and confidence, then I feel a lot more comfortable doing it than if I just went with someone who said, trust me, it'll be fine, but didn't give you any kind of details. Do you really trust people when they say that? No. So, Alec, with such a significant length of time in IM, and I'm sorry to keep harping on about it, That's fine. how have you seen it change over the years? Like maybe some key milestones in your experience. Sure. So several. In the early days, it was an interesting bolt-on. So from the perspective that I touched on earlier of development or DevOps or DevSecOps as it is nowadays, back in the early days when people were writing code and the key focus they had was the features delivered. So jumping several years ahead though, if you think of things like apps. So apps pop up on phones all the time where, hey, here's a great app that gives you X, Y, Z because we see people need it and they want it right now. If they build it and throw it out there and haven't put security into it or haven't put authentication into it, then in the early days, authentication was actually like a reverse engineer. And the perfect example that I can think of is old systems that had applications or scheduled jobs on a Unix host called a cron job. So it was a scheduled event that was going to run and move logs, X, Y, Z, whatever it was going to do. But a lot of those things actually had hard-coded usernames and passwords where one system had to talk to another. So if you dug around the right root directories on a system, you could find files, open them and go, oh, look, here's a, here's a username and a password for administrative level X, Y, Z. So really the fact that it was such an afterthought in the early days and as time has moved along, it's become more and more forefront. And hopefully we're finally at the point where as people are building a new application, they're already thinking we need to ensure that we authenticate the user strongly before we even get to the step of what exactly are we going to give them. So way back in the mid to late 90s when I was working with two-factor tokens, there was a lot of security events and it was the kind of big security events where there's, you know, a number of different stands. There's everything from people with the latest log file analyzers to firewalls. And what I loved was from 1996 to 2001, I was at this particular event, but like, you know, year after year, standing there representing the RSA authentication token. So we're standing there saying, hey, two-factor tokens, they're great. One year along pops up next to us a stand with biometric thumb scanning devices. And what was so funny was to continually be there year after year with two-factor tokens. And over the four or five years, I saw the biometric stand next to us with thumbprint scanners. They went from one person on the stand to three to six, back down to two, and then they weren't there the next year. I guess biometric was always going to come back as a strong authentication mechanism. It's just in that initial instance of the biometric thumb scan 
scanner, its first foray was we can read a, thumb, a thumbprint. And then when they came back the next year, they said, we've changed our tools slightly because you could take a photocopy of someone's thumbprint or like in movies, put a sticky tape and peel it off and put powder on it. Or the best <laughs> example they said was now our thumb scanner actually measures to check that there is blood pulsing through your thumb as it scans. <laughs> so it's like, right, that's against people chopping someone's thumb off and trying to use that as on a, on a scanner, is it? So that kind of stuff, like I said, made a quick appearance and then sort of disappeared just as quickly. The interesting thing with that is, and it doesn't, I guess, classify so much as a, as a fail, but one of the things I loved was seeing on the news a little while ago, the Museum of Failures that was started mid last year. I have not week. heard about this. If you remember personally, maybe, having seen the Google Glass, which was supposed oh, to be this yes. set of glasses with a lens in front of your yes, eye that you could things up and... I mean, you hear about it, but then I guess you don't hear about it in mainstream media, but um, so is that in the, uh, the failed museum, is it? Good question. With the exponential change that we're seeing in what's happened in identity and security and a number of those spaces in general, I saw in the news somewhere a while ago, there was a kind of authentication mechanism or biometric that did its work by evaluating people's walking patterns. So wow. you could walk across an office and based on the speed and the type of your gait, it would authenticate you based on that. Plus other things like your typing speed on a keyboard. So that kind of stuff to me is just so futuristic that I think, wow, I can't believe that that's going to be the kind of stuff. Like from walking from your car that you park in the car park to the office door, you could be authenticated by cameras along the way, everything from facial recognition to the speed that you walk. It's a double-edged sword. You could call it intrusive slash invasive, yet non-intrusive. So it's not requiring you to do anything so from that point of view we're talking not intrusive because hey you're just walking from your car to the office door which you were going to do anyway but it's so pervasive about knowing so much about you that it authenticates you and that's where people might go well hang on where's all my privacy what that's do you think a, about that you think it's intrusive Good question. I guess I would argue that the technology is not good or evil of its own, but how it's used can be heavily slanted one way or the other. Arguably, though, I would say on the side of caution, it does give a lot more power to be used for evil so that there is the chance that people could do a lot more invasive stuff with that because the technology is there that allows them to do it. But then if you think about things like the GDPR, where there is now governance that's really coming down hard on saying we really need to ensure that people who handle and manage data are very accountable for what consent is, what people are consenting to what. Even if people say, oh no, we don't want this kind of intrusive technology coming along, it could be that it's well and truly already in place as it is anyway and all that would come along next would be the icing on the cake just to make those kind of things a little bit more user-friendly and easier for people to do that. Well, I mean, that's interesting because you spoke before about, you know, I got you to walk through your time and identity and access management and getting the pushback that I had even, you know, from moving to, you know, IDAS solutions. So do you think it's just in that phase of it's new and all oh, this pushback, we haven't done this before, but do you think that this will just become mainstream that people's walks will be just be able to authenticate them? Because I mean, I'm guessing you've got a fabulous walk. So is that, is that the way it's just going to roll moving forward or... I don't know. And well, like I said, I only raised that because I saw it on some news story. So the fact that it's already in development or beta testing means someone somewhere has already come up with that. So how much it proliferates, whether it actually does get out there or whether it ends up in the failed museum in 10 years from now, I don't know. 
imagine you're in a coffee shop and somehow the glass detects from your fingerprints who you are in their user database and tracks what was in the cup so that they know at this time of day, on these days of the week, this customer comes in and drinks this type of coffee and all of that from the cup that reads your thumbprint. Or similarly, you authenticate, and I mean, I'm doing this now. I sit down at my notebook and the camera looks at me and says, oh yeah, we have facial recognition, we know who you are. But imagine that there'll be biometrics built into the keyboard. So as soon as you start typing, while you're typing, it's reading your thumbprint or your fingerprint and just going, oh yeah, I know which user you are. And by the way, you're typing at a faster speed than you normally do. Are you anxious? I perceive that at some point in the future, that level of readability from everything we touch and do and see or interact with will probably be there. I actually just think that with the technology capabilities ramping up exponentially like they are, that's more than likely of what will be in place. All these things that you spoke about, do you think people could potentially perceive this as convenience? I would say that where the drive for all of this feature and function comes in is totally from a convenience point of view. So what I know has happened in the last five, 10 years or so, a lot of large corporations have said, we need to make the user experience for our customers a lot less invasive with one of the big pushes being a thing called Omnichannel a big change from the old days where every time you got transferred from one person to the next on a call center call, they would start all over again. Who are you? What's your customer account? Yeah, number, whatever. So frustrating like though, isn't it? That. In my day, that happened a lot and people hated it and people were working to get rid of it. I'm amazed that it's still around. Back in late 1998, I was living in London and up the road from me was an Indian restaurant and I picked up the phone one night and rang to order some takeaway and they said, yep, fine, what's your name? And I said, fry, and they said, what's, what do you want to order? X, Y, Z, pay with the credit card, all done. And then it gets delivered and that's all fine. About a month or two later, I thought, you know what? I'll order from that same place again. Pick up the phone and ring them. And how they answered the phone was, good evening, Mr. Fry, would you like to order your usual? And I just thought, hello, excuse me, you know who I am and you know what I ordered. That's so easy. That's so amazing. And then cut to 15 years later here in Australia and I ring the same fish and chip shop every second or third week and order and they go, hi, what's the name? What do you want to order? Why can't you have that same software that tracks if I've called from this house number, I'm this customer and pull up my last order? That technology is well and truly there, but it's not being used by everybody. And I think, like you said, is that going to be convenience? I think the whole driver of why that kind of stuff is used by the people who are using it at the moment is for convenience. The intention is you've got product X that you want to sell to consumer Y. How do we get consumer Y from the minute they decide they might want to buy this to the end of the process of buying it with as little interruption along the way as we can possibly do? So I think really it's just a matter of greasing that path to say let's let them get straight to the purchase stage with as few interruptions as possible that's driving a lot of this arguably invasive or pervasive identity or authentication to say, how can we authenticate you without you having to jump through any hoops for us to do it? Well, I guess the main thing about that is it's going to get to a stage where, you know, you spoke about before about invasive. Where's that tipping point? Moving into a few other questions I'd love to ask you about is, how does one reconcile the idea of improved security with the increasing prevalence of cloud-based applications and the implied access controls demanded in this very public process? Well, I think that 
people have moved on a lot from the mindset originally that security was a bolt-on that you added on at the end that you could you retrofit if and when you need it. I think a lot more people, especially with the huge number of security breaches that we're hearing about week after week in the news for the last few years now, people are aware that whether your data is in the cloud or is on-premise or you know wherever your data resides, it's always at risk. And the fact that a lot of the ways that people are getting at people's data now is either through phishing attacks where you've just got to spam enough users and one of them drops their guard long enough to go, oh yeah, that looks valid, clicks it and then bang, there goes their credentials down the wire. So the fact that the ways in for people trying to hack to get to data that they shouldn't is increasingly prevalent and easier. It makes people able to, as you say, reconcile that idea of the improved security. So even though they know that cloud-based apps and web-hosted applications and putting data in shared environments makes it easier to access, they're becoming more aware of the fact that they really need to ensure that there is still tight lockdown rules of who can get to it and how and when. So it's that mind shift to understanding that the perimeter of your network, the perimeter around your data that you are trying to secure is now a lot further out and a lot more flexible and moving around. So to use an, an old analogy, if you consider 300 years ago when people lived in giant castles and it was everyone's inside the castle and the gates are up and it's secure and if they have to go out, a band of 20 of them all on horses with weapons go out at once and then come back in again to try and make sure everyone's safe. But then, you know, years later, you cut to a giant village where you've got little huts all spread out and people just on a single horse roaming around. You suddenly got so much more of a dispersed and open environment that you're trying to protect. So similarly, that's what's happening in the network space or in the, the IT space that in terms of your question, not only is it just cloud-based applications that you're needing to protect now, but it's data on phones, on tablets, on notebooks that travel around. Data is no longer in a centralized internal network. It's now all over the place in all kinds of devices and every one of them has a requirement to be secured because that device itself is now a little tiny source of data that someone might want to get into. It's such an integrated solution as well. It's not sort of one or the other or I haven't done this or that. It's quite a holistic approach and I guess what are the pitfalls and complications do you see as likely from poor adoption or implementation and how does one police control failures when the unknown is really unknown. What I see as one of the pitfalls, and again, I'm hoping that the way the market is at the moment and the way identity is becoming more talked about, there's a Melbourne identity tech talk. I'll be speaking at that on multi-factor authentication. The whole idea that people are now talking more and presenting more around identity and where it fits in security or how it's such a critical part of security. But the pitfalls, I guess, that can be on sort of different fronts. And one of them, I think I'm seeing a slowdown in this space, which was, let's say five years ago companies that were saying hey we've got this great new app or tool we need to allow people to access let's hurry up build it and throw it out there as quick as we can so even in the space of things like the internet of things and wearables and handheld devices so as all of these things were proliferating more and more the race to get the functionality and the benefit out there before thinking through the requirement to secure it is what was a major pitfall I think I see that the tide is turning from people's understanding of that now. If a company is looking to up their IM game, what are the best ways to start down that path? Perhaps three high-level points that you can call 
out today? What I would suggest some of the key things is, is to start with an audit, a review of what your as is or your existing security posture, the kind of strategic engagement or plan that first is let's see what we've got and what the lay of the land is. And one of the key things that I think really getting to the nuts and bolts of not only what their process documentation says is in place and what the senior managers believe is occurring, but then going down to the guys at the base level and finding out what really is happening. For example, environments where you find there's a number of people who go, well, how I track X is I actually have a spreadsheet that I keep on this USB stick and that's where I store everyone's usernames and passwords. So finding out what really is going on under the covers, so to speak. So that's step one. Get a really good understanding of what you've got and how it all plays out and what procedures are being followed by who and where they're different from one state to the next or one office to the next so that you can really get a good lay of land of what's occurring. The next step after that is what are the pain points? So where are you finding things aren't working? Where are you have gaps in what you want to have happening versus what is actually being delivered? Or more importantly, just nice to have so that you don't have any mechanism for at the moment. So, you know, we would love it if our business partners could also access this application, but we've just never gone into that process. So like I said, step one, the lay of the land. Step two, what are your current pain points, known gaps and wish list of what you'd like to add on later? And then step three, look at what all your moving parts are of your environment and how they're moving. What systems do you have? What's on the roadmap for which systems are being legacied or replaced with newer systems? So what's already on the way out? What's on the way in? What projects do you have that are moving things to the cloud? Have you got any secret projects where people are doing things in the cloud and it's just not raised as an official request because rather than go through the steps internally, someone just goes and runs a side project with the minimal budget that they've got and just spins up their own Azure or AWS cloud and says, hey, I can throw it in there and start testing it. And next thing they start letting a few people use it. And before you know it, that is a critical system that is in everyday production. But officially, when you talk to the senior managers and say, tell us all the systems you've got in your environment that we need to know about, there are these little pocket projects that built up a system that now is pretty much part of their bread and butter that they don't actually consider as being something that needed to be looked at because they didn't even know really that it was in use. So looking at those and saying, okay, based on what's really running under the bonnet, what's moving, changing, being obsoleted, being added to your environment and where these projects may converge, those kind of things is the existing roadmap. So if nothing else was to be changed in your environment, what over the next year would your environment look like? And then once you've mapped out what changes are naturally occurring in there anyway, then overlaying that and saying, well, as we can see, you're moving seven different things to the cloud. Let's try and consolidate how that's done so that you use a single authentication system to authenticate users. That's to come back to your topic earlier of where are things moving in the identity space. One of the key things is the concept of identity brokerage. The fact that, as I mentioned earlier, people originally popped up little standalone authentication systems and silos of where they stored user credentials. A lot of people now are looking at models that say, let's not necessarily replace the half dozen authentication systems we've got with one new one because there's a lot of scenarios and a lot of examples where it's great to say we've got six different authentication stacks and they don't talk to each other. Let's put in the seventh one with the intention of migrating all the existing six over to the seventh and then obsoleting the old six only to find that a year or two down the track all you've achieved in doing is adding the seventh and migrating some 
some users to it and you've now got a lay of the land with seven different systems all competing. So for that reason, one of the big pushes now is a lot of people looking at how do we not necessarily phase out any of the systems we've got in a really short term, but make them cohesive and a tool like an identity broker that says, I'm going to sit as your middleman and give you effectively one virtual centralized identity management space just so happening to back end off the different silos you already have in place. So that now allows you down the track to ideally consolidate the backend identity stacks to less than you've got now, but not necessarily that you need to because your problem of management has been fixed by centralizing them through the one brokerage point in the middle that allows you to have effectively one virtualized view of your identity environment. Alec? Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you? LinkedIn is probably the best way to, to get hold of me. Thanks so much, Alec. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We're looking forward to bringing frequent snippets of what's happening in the security and emerging tech industries. If you think there's someone I should be speaking with, even if it's you, reach out to media at carissagreenindustries.com and we'll try to make it happen.